privileged today to have with us Chad Hess as our speaker. Chad is a member of St. Philip's and he and his wife Tracy uh, and their two sons Tanner and Peyton came to us a couple of years ago and just jumped into the life of the parish and have been a great blessing to our parish family. And Chad has an interesting background. Uh, he grew up in what I think of as old Florida, not the uh, Yankee glitzy Florida of the coast, but uh, the old Florida and an old family home there. And through a series of unlikely circumstances, ended up being educated at Catholic school. And through that, he developed a great love of the liturgy and a sense of the sacred and all of that and grew in his faith. And then as he puts it, he went through his own English Reformation uh, later in life and came to the Anglican church and became very involved uh, in the life of the church. Uh, one of the things that's great about Chad is that he has uh, a deep love for an understanding of the church, which is, uh, in these days, something you don't find so often. Um, Chad graduated from law school and had a job in Washington, D.C. He's worked here. He's worked in Florida. Uh, probably his best decision along the way was to marry Tracy. Um, they were married here in Charleston, and then uh, work took them back to Florida, and they were there, um, and their children were born there, and then an opportunity arose to come back to South Carolina, and they took that and now live in Mount Pleasant. So we are very blessed to have them here today, and please join me in welcoming Chad to the podium. warm welcome. Uh, some of what Brian said is even true. <laughs> now, it's my privilege and uh, it's my responsibility uh, to be with you all this afternoon, and it strikes me that Tracy and I have been here for just a little less than two years, and I've already been given a microphone. So, Connie has kindly placed a rotten tomato under each of your chairs. Feel free to use them if I go off the rails. I want to take you on a trip into Christmas past back to 1987. <clears throat> I was 13 and my sister was 10 and we had the great fortune of living right next door to my grandparents. Uh, and we had stepping stones that ran from our back door to their back door and uh, at least six nights out of the week we were at their house for dessert eating our ice cream and watching the Muppet show with them in the early 80s. Um, Christmas Eve was always the most special time at my grandparents house. My grandmother was uh, the definition of Southern hospitality, and especially so on Christmas Eve. And uh, I can remember the joy, the laughter, the storytelling, the great care that she took in preparing uh, her place for our entire extended family to be with her every Christmas Eve. The tree was perfection. I mean, this thing would rival anything at the White House. The food was phenomenal. The company, of course, was the best part. And uh, you can imagine our trepidation for Christmas Eve in 1987 when five weeks before that evening, my grandmother passed away from ovarian cancer. Thanksgiving was 
pretty rough. She passed on November 18. Uh, we made it through Thanksgiving, but uh, there was uh, concern over whether Christmas Eve would be anything close to what we had enjoyed all those years. Uh, my grandfather, a few weeks before Christmas, uh, nevertheless said, I still want everyone to come over on Christmas Eve. And uh, you know, we, we were fine to do that. I think expectations were fairly low. Uh, and uh, about a week before Christmas Eve, uh, he invited my sister and I over to decorate the tree. And of course, my mother, <laughs> and if you knew my mother, you'd, you'd understand this, desperately wanted to be there with us, helping to decorate this tree. Uh, she had learned from my grandmother and had probably uh, even one-upped her uh, in the attention to detail department. And my grandfather refused. Uh, he insisted that only uh, me and my sister decorate the tree. So we got the tree decorated. It was tilted. It was leaning. The garland was uh, non-uniform. The lights were concentrated in one little part of it. The thing was a wreck, but that's the way he wanted it. Christmas Eve, uh, the, the family showed up. 25-plus people, including, uh, by that time, my older cousins, fiancés, and girlfriends, and very close friends of the family. And to our great surprise, uh, in lieu of the gorgeous packages that my grandmother would have had there, my grandfather indeed had gifts for everyone. This, this was somewhat surprising. The best part about them is that they were all wrapped in aluminum foil from the grocery store. <laughs> And uh, they were misshapen, you know, very few were in boxes, uh, but they were there nonetheless. And um, <clears throat> one by one, uh, he asked my sister and I to pass out these gifts, and we did so. And, um, you know, we were not in a rush. And so he, uh, he insisted that we take uh, turns opening them. Uh, my Aunt Tink, uh, who had been called Tinkerbell as a kid, uh, and the name stuck, uh, went first, and Aunt Tink was known for her love of jewelry. I mean, if you got jewelry, she wants to see it, and she wants to wear it. And so Tink was surprised to see that underneath her aluminum foil uh, was a ring box. And she was even more surprised when she opened the ring box and found inside something like this. And if you can see that, that is a three-carat ring. <laughs> Literally, with three plastic carrots glued to a ring. And as you might expect, laughter broke out in that living room, laughter that was probably heard throughout the zip code, and a great anticipation arose for what would be open next. I think my cousin Mike, who was uh, in his early 20s by that time, probably was one of the next few people to go, and Mike desperately wanted a fishing boat. I mean, we lived about seven miles from the Indian River Lagoon, and any young man wanted a fishing boat. And so Mike opened up his aluminum foil, and he got a 38-foot yacht. <laughs> now, it's hard to see this thing uh, in the picture, but it's probably four inches long, and glued to the bottom of it are 38 little plastic feet. <laughs> Now, thankfully, there was a crisp piece of U.S. currency somewhere in all of these gifts. But long after that money was spent and long after these gag gifts were put on the shelf to collect dust, the memory of my grandfather's hospitality that night remained. And it remains to this day. We hear a lot about hospitality, especially in a city like Charleston. You can get an advanced degree in hospitality management. You can... Uh, get a career in the hospitality industry. Everybody from the lead concierge at the Hotel Bennett to the lady who's got a homemade 
coffee-making machine on a tricycle parked on King Street is part of the hospitality industry. And you hear about economic hospitality as well. Uh, the Chamber of Commerce tells us that you know, hospitality and tourism are a $7.4 billion industry in Charleston, employing more than 40,000 people in our community. Hospitality, folks, is big business. And you also hear about Southern hospitality, and we've all experienced Southern hospitality. We've all been the recipients of it, and, and surely uh, many of us have been the providers of it. Uh, and, and I suppose if you get on the internet for too long, you'll see uh, uh, stories about whether ho Southern hospitality is a real thing, whether it's a myth and all those kinds of things. I, I think it's real. Uh, and I think, of, of course, anything can be twisted and used for ulterior motive, but I've seen Southern hospitality and I've been the great, uh, I've had the great benefit of enjoying Southern hospitality. So I think it's real. Um, but regardless of whether it's real or not, it's certainly perceived as real. It is a proven fact that in survey after survey, the South is considered the most hospitable or the, the part of the country that uh, is perceived as the most hospitable place. Uh, time after time, Charleston, of course, is at the top of every you know, Condé Nast traveler or travel and leisure magazine for the friendliest city. Here's a rundown of the, friendly, the other friendliest cities uh, in the Condé Nast magazine in 2018, Chattanooga, Savannah, Natchez, our own Columbia, Greenville, Nashville, and of course Charleston. The rest of the country sees us as a place of hospitality. And lots has been, lots of uh, things have been written about Southern hospitality by many a writer. I love this from uh, the Southern humorist Roy Blunt. Southern hospitality is an institution. Before air conditioning, climate was a factor. In the South, people were more likely to be sitting out on the porch when folks showed up. You couldn't pretend not to be home when there you were sitting on the porch. You could pretend to be dead, but then you couldn't fan yourself. <laughs> Southern Living Magazine says uh, that there are six primary characteristics of Southern hospitality. Politeness, good home cooking, kindness, helpfulness, charm, and charity. And they go into some details on each of those. The charity one strikes me as interesting in that they talk about the golden rule being alive and well in the South. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, against the backdrop of this Southern hospitality perception is also the perception that the South is highly religious. Pew Research Center did a study in 2016 measuring the percentage of adults within a given state who were perceived as highly religious. It's their term, not mine. And here's the top 10. Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, Louisiana, Arkansas, South Carolina, West Virginia, Georgia, Oklahoma, and North Carolina. That's the perception. A professor of American religious history at Vanderbilt says this, religion in the South remains vital. And if it were a sport, it would be a contact sport with people using the Bible as a genuine guide to their actions. So we're perceived as hospitable. We're perceived as religious. It begs the question, is there an intersection between Southern hospitality and biblical hospitality? That is our faith. 
in order to have any hope of gleaning an answer to that question, I think it's helpful to have a better picture of biblical hospitality. Like I said, we've all been the recipient of, of Southern hospitality. Biblical hospitality sometimes is a bit more, um, I don't know if elusive is the right word, but it's certainly deeper. Let's explore a little bit of the depth. We could spend the rest of the afternoon talking about examples of biblical hospitality, but it's an image woven throughout all of Scripture. Uh, there's no way that uh, we could go through uh, the, 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 even the best of the best images of hospitality in the Bible. But what I want to do instead is hold up three attributes of biblical hospitality uh, that I think help paint the picture of what it looks like. The first is that biblical hospitality is humble. In Luke 14, Jesus is having dinner at a Pharisee's home, and Luke tells us this. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But rather, when you are invited to such a feast, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. <clears throat> it's interesting here, the message of the parable is one spoken to the person in the position of guest. There's a clear message here that a guest is to be humble. Humility gets a bad rap in our culture, I think. Our culture says that the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Kill or be killed. If you want to be successful, you better act successful. Humility can be confused for weakness. Humility can be confused for being a doormat. One dictionary definition of humility defines it as a modest or low view of one's own importance. It makes it sound a little bit like low self-esteem. makes humility sound unattractive. But humility is not weakness or low self-esteem. It's a surrender of self-importance a surrender of self-laudation, a surrender of self-strength. And it's an embracing of the source of all of your blessings, God. It's giving God the credit for any perceived importance that you may have in the eyes of others, in the eyes of your host. The humble person doesn't need to act like a big shot in order to influence the situation or to enjoy the event to which he's been invited. He knows that God's in control. The humble person doesn't need to jockey for position before the host. The humble guest seeks not to impress the host, but to encounter the host. And similarly, I think the humble guest in God's house seeks not to impress God, but to encounter Him. 
There's no place for narcissism, narcissism or self-promotion in biblical hospitality. <clears throat> and there's something, I think, that is easily missed in the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 14. Uh, and, and it's this, and it's something that admittedly I missed until I read it about 14 times in preparation for speaking with you all today. Um, and it's this fact. All of the guests who would be competing for that place of honor, for jockeying, jockeying for position to get to the host, have all been invited to the party. They're there. They're inside the door. Notice that Jesus says in the parable, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, da-da-da-da-da. The context is that these folks have already been invited to the party. All of those who would jockey for position or a place of honor miss the fact that they are the invited and they are the beloved and they are wanted at the feast. <clears throat> and I think it's also important here to remember that Jesus is not simply teaching a manners class, as important as manners are. His parable foreshadows something far bigger. We who have been made children of God are indeed invited to a wedding feast. And ultimately, it's the wedding feast that is spoken of in Revelation, the Feast of the Lamb, the ultimate wedding feast to which we've been given glimpses. The God of the universe wants you there as his guest in his house. And the master of the house wants it filled with those who are humbled to have simply received an invitation. You don't need to jockey for a better position or hope you get better seats in God's house. Being invited, being embraced, being welcomed as a stranger, and becoming family is all the position that you need. Accept his invitation with humility and gratitude and be a good guest in his house. That Christmas Eve at my grandfather's house, no one had to jockey for position to earn his good gifts. Simply being there was the gift. I think the second attribute of biblical hospitality is that it's our response to the gospel. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas are in Philippi, and I won't read the whole thing and just kind of paraphrase here to get to the pertinent part. Uh, they have commanded a demonic spirit out of a young girl who had a gift of divination who was making a lot of money for her owners, a slave girl. And Paul and Silas are arrested and beaten with rods and thrown into jail. And at midnight, they are praying and singing hymns to God in prison. And they're loud enough to be heard throughout the prison. And there's an earthquake, and their chains are broken, and the doors of the prison are open. And the jailer awakes to all this commotion. And mind you, this is a Roman prison. The jailer awakes, sees that the doors are open, assumes that the prisoners have escaped, and decides to kill himself. And Paul says, stop, we're all here. Their presence meant that the jailer's own life was spared. You can imagine what was waiting for him had these guys gotten away. And his response is one of amazing 
biblical hospitality. And here's what that part of Acts 16 says. The jailer brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he, the jailer, took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. He rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And mind you, I mean, this was after midnight. Just like the jailer, we were each once dead or good as dead and have been made alive in Christ. A response to that reality is needed. In the jailer's case, his response was he immediately took Paul and Silas to his home. He washed their wounds. He fed them. And he rejoiced. That's a genuine response to the good news of new life, of new creation. You can just imagine that that man's life was never the same. He was a new creation. <clears throat> I'd like to think that uh, my grandfather's lavish Christmas Eve in 1987 was a response to the fact that while he had just lost his wife five short weeks earlier, he rejoiced in the good news that he still had the rest of us. And although that tragedy was recent and fresh, that night he washed our wounds with the medicine of laughter. He brought us up into his house, he fed us with fellowship, and he rejoiced that we were still there. Biblical hospitality is the right response to the fact that God, through Jesus Christ, was first hospitable to us. He didn't wait for us to clean up ourselves. He invited us in when we were still dirty, when we were still afraid, he washed our wounds, he fed us, and he made each of us, like that jailer, a new creation. What a model of biblical hospitality this jailer provides for us today, 2,000 years later. So biblical hospitality is humble. It's a response to the good news. And then I think finally, and ultimately, although we could say a bunch of other things about biblical hospitality, it's really a disposition of the heart. And I was tempted to say a condition of the heart, but condition sounds fleeting. Disposition sounds changed. Disposition sounds more concrete. I think it's the right word. Some aspects of cultural hospitality uh, are often reduced to tasks, chores, behaviors, manners. And believe me, I'm not knocking manners. I love manners. But sometimes those things can be mechanical. Biblical hospitality, rather, would seek to give us the heart of Jesus. Here's some examples. And again, I'm not knocking Southern hospitality. Big fan. But while Southern hospitality might encourage us to open the door for someone, biblical hospitality would encourage us to open our heart to that someone.
While Southern hospitality might cause us to wave to our neighbor as they drive by and we're out walking the dog, biblical hospitality would invite us to know that neighbor, to ring their doorbell, to bring them a gift, to, to say a word. And that's hard to do in our fast-paced life and culture. Southern hospitality would invite us to warmly extend an invitation to an event. Biblical hospitality would encourage us to warmly extend an invitation to someone to join God's kingdom. That Christmas Eve, my grandfather was able to find the gag gift that spoke to each of us, starting with the three-carat ring and a 38-foot boat. He had something unique and custom-tailored to each of us there. And he knew how to do that because he knew us deeply and individually. That was the disposition of his heart. His hospitality wasn't anything he had to work at. That's biblical hospitality. It was second nature. To throw a bone to Brian, C.S. Lewis wrote, Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Your neighbor is, your, is the holiest object presented to your senses. A wise person who happens to be sitting in the back row uh, with uh, medium-length blonde hair defined hospitality to me along these lines. It's meeting people where they are and then bringing them into God's love and truth. And I like this from Henry Nouwen. Hospitality means primarily the creation of free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them space where change can take place. My friends, thankfully, we don't have the job of changing people or changing the world. We do have the job of creating space and room for God to make that change happen. Jesus wants us to have the kind of hospitality that is the dis, that as a disposition of our hearts. He says this in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Think of how many times Jesus broke bread with folks in the Gospels. He sees Zacchaeus up in a tree, trying desperately, desperately to get a look at this Jesus, wanting to know more about Jesus, wanting to know who he is. Zacchaeus becomes so visible in the tree that Jesus, of course, knows he's there and sees him and says, Zacchaeus, come down from the tree. I'm going to have dinner at your house tonight. Now, there's some, some forced hospitality, uh, but you can imagine like the jailer, Zacchaeus was never the same after that dinner. Jesus wants to come in and eat with you. Be hospitable to Christ. He promises to knock on your door. Will you open the door of your heart?
One of the taglines for this luncheon uh, promised that I would explore the intersection of Southern hospitality and biblical hospitality. I don't know that we, we got very far. Uh, I think we can say that that intersection is certainly not a physical one. It's not an academic one. It's in your heart. Let your hospitality, especially this Advent season, be humble. Let it be responsive to the gospel, the good news. And let it be the disposition of your heart to love your neighbor as yourself. To offer that space where change can take place to the glory of God's kingdom. And if you can do all that with a southern accent, even better. As the hymn uh, this time of year says, um, and it would be my prayer, let every heart prepare him room. Amen. Great. Thank you so much, Chad. That was terrific, a lot to think about. And as we are in the season of Advent, I do want to encourage all of you to think about both for yourselves and your families what you can do to help your families embrace Advent. And the Advent wreath is one of the simplest ways to do that. And there's a great power in that if you were the dad in the family of being the one to do that. Um, there also was the Jesse Tree Project that we had here um, at St. Philip's Sunday Morning, which is another great resource you can find on our website. Before I close this in prayer, um, I did have one brief announcement uh, for the men of St. Philip's. Um, we don't usually have these, but I was asked by a very lovely lady to please say this. Um, we have the greening of the church on Friday the 13th, perhaps not an auspicious date, um, at 9 o'clock in the morning. And some of the men who traditionally have helped with that, um, going up on letters and whatnot, are indisposed this year. So the ladies need a few gentlemen to come and help. So if you have some time around 9 o'clock on the morning of Friday the 13th, that would be a blessing to them if you can come. I will also tell you that they all bring breakfast treats to share, and it's really good. So with that, let me close us with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this season of Advent. We thank you for the fact that you chose to send your son, Jesus Christ, to be born into a manger for our salvation. Lord, we pray as Chad said, that we would open our hearts to you in new ways this season, and that we would open our hearts to our neighbors and those you put in our path as well, that they might be drawn into the warmth of your kingdom. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. <laughs>